0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you have your Bible, you can open it to 2 Samuel chapter 20. I know I told you last week we were going to do 19, 20, and 21. We did 19. (laughs) And I told you I had more food last week than would keep for a week. That was true. I scrapped all the rest and started over, you know. But we are still going to pick up where we left off. And we have three more um, points to go through tonight as we look at uh, King David. We're really in the um, final, not in the final chapter of Samuel, but we're in the kind of the final segment of his life. You know, you could really look at his life in three, three places. You know, one is his kind of ascent. To the, to, the, to the place where God had him, um, and then his arrival there, and then um, from the time of his fall, Bathsheba, all the things that went on with that. And then um, really these are kind of the last years, the back nine of his life. And there's still some important lessons for us. And I love how God... Uh, he doesn't do it with many, but he does it with a few. Abraham, uh, Joseph, David, uh, obviously Jesus and Paul. Like he he does lay out like a few lives that you get to see the whole thing. And, and every bit of it is intentional. There's not one wasted uh, portion of it. And so God is teaching us even now, like in this part of David's life that isn't as exciting, it isn't as pleasant, uh, but it is equally as rich. And so we have the privilege of of seeing all of it at his expense, really. But uh, it 's a privilege for us, so why don 't we pray and then we 'll get into the message that we have tonight and so father we we come to you, Lord, and we come to your word, and um, not one of us here really fully understands the uh, the the um, power that that you have in your word for us and the treasure that we hold in our hands and, and what it adds to us. But Lord, we believe, nevertheless, that uh, it doesn't come back void. We believe, Lord, that what you're gonna sow into our hearts here tonight is is intentional, it's on purpose, it means something to us, and so we ask, Lord, that not one of us would miss anything that you want to speak. Lord, you know our path, you know each part of everything that we're going through right now. And so I pray that you would address those things, speak to those things. Lord, let your spirit go further than my mind or my speech can reach. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in uh, what is spoken and heard here tonight. So God, uh, please do exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think as we study together. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week I and I hate I hate two part things where you got to pick up because some some of you weren't here and you don't know what I'm talking about you know so we've got to do a review thing but you know last week we I began um, our our message uh, saying make the statement that um, leaders are almost universally uh, acclaimed everybody loves a good leader people like leaders parents we want to raise leaders (laughs) Uh, employers want leaders to work for them, people that are in their um, organizations, and, and God likes leaders. He declares over his people, he says that um, that you, my people, that you're to be the head and not the tail, you know, and so there is this, this universal uh, love for a good leader, and everybody's looking for a good leader, and the reason for that is because uh, a- anywhere or anytime there is a need or there is uh, a destination or a desire or a goal, anytime that something needs to happen or something needs to change or move, then someone or a group of someone's has to lead that. It doesn't happen all by itself. Uh, There is a law of God. It's not in the Bible, but it's scientific. People have called it the second law of thermodynamics. You've probably heard it before. And that is that systems tend towards disorder. Meaning that things do not become more organized, more functional, uh, or more complete uh, to the, when left to themselves. They become more disorganized, more dysfunctional, and they tend to break down. And that is just a truth. There's an exception to that. And that is, and scientifically, when energy is applied to that system. If you apply energy to a system, it can go in the opposite direction. I will add a word to that, and that is directed energy because I have seen my kids throw energy at a room that needs to be cleaned and it doesn't go anywhere because it's not directed energy. It has to have have some kind of order to it, you know? And so when directed energy, and that really is what leaders do. That's what leadership is uh, in any kind of a system. A leader can see the condition clearly that something is in, knows in that situation what needs to be done and how to do it, A leader will win the confidence of the people that are there with that leader and then see it through the project to completion, and here's the the big one, with the right motives. (laughs) You know, that's a good leader. And so as I say all of that, I know you're thinking like I am that the world right now is in need of some leaders, you know, we need some leaders in the world, okay? Now, Jesus was the ultimate leader. And I, I love John chapter 13. That's the chapter where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Because I, I don't think that there's any greater uh, picture of of real true leadership than what happened in that chapter. And it wasn't the foot washing part. That was big because it was kind of the example of here's how you lead. You lead as a servant. But But really, I think the power of the passage comes at the beginning of it in John 13, where, where where it just gives kind of like a narration of what was going on in that moment. And it says that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and and it says then having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then it says, knowing where he came from and where he was going, it says in that situation. He then took the towel and girded himself and went through and washed their feet and spoke to them and the whole thing. And that really uh, says the whole thing because it tells us that his heart was in the right place. He was motivated by a love for the people that he was leading and serving. His heart was there. Uh, He also was fully aware of everything that was going on. He knew who he was. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew everything that was about to happen. And it was with a full clear picture of the context of the moment that he then put aside the difficulty that it was for him knowing what was about to happen. And he gave himself fully to the people that he was leading, and then he equipped them for what they would need to do after he would then go to the cross, which was what was next for him. And that's just leadership. That's what Jesus is. He is a leader. And I want you to understand that when he calls us, he calls us with the intent of making us into leaders in some form. It doesn't mean that we're going to run a nation. It doesn't mean that we're going to be over a, a, a company or an organization. But it might just be as, a, as leading a family. It might be as a mother. It could be as, as simple as uh, being in, in a sports team. You know, we all are called to lead in some way. And so when Jesus calls us to follow, he's calling us to follow so that he can make us leaders. That's what he wants to do. That's what he uh, is doing. Okay? Now, to lead is an honor, but it's not easy. And that's really what we're seeing in this segment of David's life. See, on the front side, we saw all the glory. Everything he did pleased the people all the time. All of his metrics were up and to the right. Everything was going his way. Enemies were falling. People were bringing their allegiance. His income was increasing. His Everything was just going so well. We're going, yeah, David, yeah. And and God saying, this is what I do in a life. We're saying, yeah, Lord, do this in my life. Now we get to see the other side (laughs) of what it means to be a leader, that it isn't necessarily as easy as all of that. That All of the good that comes with it has also a side that is, well, I guess you could just use the word bad, (laughs) okay? And so uh, I'm not going to go through all the points again, but I will tell you them so that you at least pick up our context where we are. What we learned from David beginning in chapter 19 and extending through chapter 23 is, first of all, that a leader leads first and feels later, And David had lost his son. It was an unimaginably painful event for David to have to go through. But just because he lost a son, he doesn't get to stop being king. And he is called by God and then exhorted by man that he needs to dry his eyes and sit on his throne or else things are going to get worse for him than they were before. And the truth of it is, is that as leaders, we don't get to stop leading just because we're in pain. You as a mom, you may have just been slaughtered by your girlfriends you know, behind your back and you found out about it, but your kids still need you to be mom that day right after that happened, you know, and we need to learn how to do it. Dad, you may have just had a bomb dropped on you at work in some way where somebody just, just stabbed you in the back behind what you can imagine, but your wife still needs a leader when you go home, and your kids still need a dad when you go home. And so as leaders, we have to learn the discipline of leading first and feeling later. And that's just part of it. We saw it in David. We also learned, number two, that as a leader, understand that fools rush in. As soon as David is given leave to come back to be king, he is greeted by problem people. People that just want David to settle disputes and they, want, he, they, they, they don't care about what David is going through at all. It's all about them. And the truth is, it's fun to lead people that get it, but most people don't. And so you have to deal with those people as well. Uh, And those are the more needy ones, you know. And these are the things, problem people, these are the things you have to do if you want to do what you get to do. In other words, if you have a house, you've got to clean it. If you want a dog, you've got to walk it. It, You take the bad with the good. If you want to lead people, you've got to deal with people you know and that's just part of the deal okay number 3 we saw it last week is that if you are a leader people are going to ask you to fix unfixable problems They're going to ask you to try to fix something that no one ever has ever been able to fix in the history of the world, but you better do it because you're in charge, okay? And that's just what people do. It's what they expect of a leader, and you can't run from it. You got to still try, and that's kind of what uh, David does, even though he doesn't solve the problem. We're going to pick up in chapter 20. The the fourth one was that reward what's good, you know, so if you want to just write that down, but we're going to pick up in chapter 20. Uh, with number five. We're going to do five, six, and seven in, in this text tonight. And number five is this, move it to the top of the pile. If you're a leader, sometimes you have to move it to the top of the pile. The text is chapter 20. Let's get into it. It says that there happened to be there Okay, now I know you're thinking, where is there and what are we jumping into right now? Here's the context. David is being brought back to Jerusalem now as the king for the second time. He had been exiled because of a revolt and the revolt has been crushed. And now David is being brought back to Jerusalem as the king. However, there is a squabble amongst the people. A conflict amongst the people between the Israelites, the 10 northern tribes, and Judah, which is David's tribe, over who gets the credit for bringing David back. Now, that's a stupid fight. Okay, They're fighting over whose name is listed first on the program. And, And so the men of Judah, which were David's family, their name goes first. And the men of Israel... They're upset about it and they say, There's more of us than there are of you. We've put more into this than you have. Why do you get the credit? And Judah says, We're his family, so we're bringing him back. So go home. And so they say, Fine. And they leave. And so Judah brings him back, Israel leaves. And so it says that it happened, it says that there happened to be there a man of Belial, that means a son of Satan whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. He was from one of the 10 tribes, Israel. And he blew a trumpet and said, we have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. And so this guy just stands up, he blows a trumpet, and he says, look, if they're not going to give us credit, then we're not even going to be part of his people. We'll just start our own thing. We'll go up north. We'll build our own palace. We don't need David. And so it says, every man of Israel, verse two, went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Isn't that amazing how fickle people are? I mean, a minute ago, all of these people were rallying around David, praising him for the victories and the glory and the wealth that he had brought into the nation. And now because they don't get their name on the program, they're like, we're done with you. I think there's a whole lesson, another lesson in leadership here is don't put too much confidence in uh, the praises that people give you for the good things that you do, because it doesn't, it's about that deep. Can you see the space between my fingers? It's because there is none, <laughs> you know, they, they're ready now to just kill him over this thing. They're, they're done with them. And so it says that David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the 10 women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house and he put them in ward. He kind of separated them. Uh, Ward is usually a prison, but he kind of puts them into a, a secluded place. And he fed them, but he went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Now, these are the ten concubines that Absalom took sexual advantage of when he revolted against David. It was a sign of saying, I am in charge now. And so these women have been defiled by Absalom. And so as David comes home, he says, well, I'm no longer going to have relations with you. And so he separates them uh, in, in their widowhood. Now, then, verse four, said the king to Amasa. And again, Amasa is a man who has been newly appointed by David to replace Joab. Joab had been the general since the very beginning. David is fed up with Joab. And so David gives Joab's job to this man named Amasa. And he is a rookie. He is Newly appointed into this position. And this is his first assignment and an opportunity that he has now to secure his place as David's general. The king said to Amasa, assemble me the men of Judah within three days and be thou here present. He says, you have three days to gather together all of the fighting men of Judah. David has it in mind that something has to be done about Sheba and what has gone on uh, with the Israelites. And so I need to understand where I'm at militarily. And so it says, verse five, Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried. And the idea is that he waited, The idea is that he procrastinated. The idea is that he didn't get right on what David asked him to get right on. He didn't do it right away. He tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him. So David, being gentle but very serious about what he asked for and what needs to be done, David said to Abishai, now Abishai is Joab's brother. So he knows the family, Abishai's been with David from the beginning, he doesn't ask Joab, he asks Abishai. He says, now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us more harm than did Absalom take you, your Lord's servants and pursue after him lest he get him fenced cities and escape from us, okay. So we see this guy Amasa, and Amasa is a procrastinator. Amasa is a guy who doesn't get right on what needs to be gotten right on. Amasa is a guy who stays on vacation while the Taliban. No, wait, that's a to- that's a different story. That's not that's not that's not this. He, I, sorry, I, I, I'm mixed up. Too many voices, too many things, too much noise going on, the whole thing. <laughs> he, he, he is a procrastinator. You don't want to be a procrastinator. You want to do now what you're supposed to do. That's what David's into. That's not what uh, the value of this guy is. And so uh, um, he does that. So now Abishai is, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, Abishai is sent in his place. And it says that there went out, verse seven, after him, Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, and they went out of Jerusalem pers- to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bikri. Now, when they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them. So Amasa, who is supposed to be the general, he's really kind of the puppet general in everybody's eyes but his own, and of course David's. He kind of joins up with the company and he goes, oh, well, where are you guys going? He goes, well, I'm the general. And he goes, so follow me. And then he begins to march and it says that they went after him. And so he's thinking that he is uh, the general. Everybody else is thinking this guy doesn't really know what's going on right about now. And he really doesn't. And so it says that he went before them and Joab's garment that he had put on. So Joab is there. And you guys know Joab. Is Joab a good guy? Not so much. Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and he put upon it a girdle with a sword fastened upon his loins in the sheaf thereof, and as he went forth, it fell out. So he kind of like has a, a, a dagger in his sleeve, and he does one of these things. He goes, and, and he's got the robe and the sword kind of falls down into his hand, and so he's, he's ready. He's got the blade uh, hidden, but prepared. And it says in verse 9 that Joab said to Amasa. He says, are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, to pull him in. Listen, guys, if somebody grabs you by the beard with their right hand to kiss you, that might not be, something's wrong. But Amasa took no heed. That's, that. Mark that. Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he, Joab, smote him therewith in the fifth rib and shed out his bowels to the ground and struck him not again and he died. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bikri. This is the kind of guy that Joab is. Joab says, okay, well, David doesn't want me to be the general, but I'm the general. I'm going to be the general and I'm going to do what I have to do to maintain my position as the general. And so he just takes this guy, Amasa, who is guilty of uh, no, no major crime other than following after Absalom and his naivety, and now he is killed for it. But understand this, this is bonus content. This isn't one of the points, but you can write this down. If you want to be a leader, if you are a leader, understand this, is that there is someone who wants your position. Do you understand that? Even if that someone is an invisible entity, even if it is a spiritual force in high places, there is someone that wants your position and they were or are willing to take you out in order to thwart you or to steal what you have. That is just the fact of the matter. And understand that it is. And we are called, as God's people, to be vigilant, to be sober, to be fully armed with the armor of God, with the shield of faith. We're to walk circumspectly and we're to understand the conditions of the life that we are living in right now. And we're not to be naive. Because something is trying to steal what you have. And if you aren't aware of it, then things are going to happen to you. You're going to be pierced through with things. Like Paul said to Timothy, he said, if you're chasing after riches, you're going to be pierced through with many sorrows. You're going to get stabbed by things unexpectedly that you weren't looking for. We have got to be wise and understand that we're living in a hostile environment. And if we are overly naive, then we will be burned. Dad... That is not a bruise on your daughter's neck. Do you understand? We have got to be aware of what's going on in the world around us, and we've got to be on our toes. And this guy wasn't, and he loses his life for it. Okay, so one of Joab's men stood by him and said, He that favors Joab and he that is for David, let him go after Joab. And Amasa wallowed in blood in the midst of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa out of the highway into the field and cast a cloth upon him. And when he saw that everyone came by him, stood still. And so, I mean, you ever been on the highway and there's an accident and the only thing really left slowing down traffic is everybody that's going by and they're doing this? You know, the rubber neck. That's, that's what's going on here. Is that there, there's a guy. And there's been a crime committed. And, and Joab will die for this crime eventually. He will pay for it. Okay. But everybody sees this and they're going like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And everybody's gathering around. And so the guy who's there standing by it says, we've got to remove this out of the way. And we've got to clear. This is the first cover-up of scandal uh, in, that we've seen in a while. I don't want to say in the Bible. But this is clearly a cover-up of something scandalous for the sake of keeping things moving in a certain direction, but there is a principle here that is important for you and I, uh, if we're going to be effective in this life, and that is that sometimes you've got to remove the distraction. If there is something that is distracting uh, the progress or the process of something that needs to happen, you need to just cover it and get it out of the way. Because it's impeding things. And that's what happens here. They say, listen, this is slowing everything down. Get it out of here. And so they move Amasa's body uh, out of the way. Now, verse 13. When he was removed out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel and to Bethmeaca and to the Barites. And they were gathered together and they also went after him. And they came and they besieged him in Abel of Bethmeaca. And they cast up a bank against the city and stood in the trench. And all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. And so they, they kind of narrow it down that Sheba is in this one uh, town. And so they, they besiege it, essentially, and they begin battering the wall. And then verse 16, there cried a wise woman out of the city Hear, hear, say, I pray unto Joab, come near hither that I may speak with you. And when he was come near unto her, the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am he. Then she said unto him, Hear the words of your handmaid. And he answered, I do hear. Then she spoke, saying, They were wont to speak in old times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel. So they ended the matter. I am one of them that are peaceable and faithful in Israel and you seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Saying, listen, this city has roots. It's a landmark. We serve a purpose and you're going to knock down our city. Why? And so Joab answered verse 20 and he said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. The matter is not so. But a man of Mount Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bikri by name, has lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. Another bonus one for you uh, leaders. Just get a woman to do it. (laughs) Okay? They just know how to solve the problem quickly. And so the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bikri. This is a very violent chapter. Did you realize what you were getting into tonight? You're like, this is the Bible? Like, is this, is the whole thing filled, filled of this? You know, it's life. And it says that she cast it out to Joab and he blew a trumpet and they retired from the city, every man to his tent. And Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. Okay, now, sum up, verse 23. Joab was over all the host of Israel. And Benaiah, oh, he got his job back, didn't he? And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and over the Pelethites. That's clerical staff. And Adoram was over the Tribute, that's the IRS And Jehoshaphat, it is. That's just what it was. They were the tribute was the taxing. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. So he's the county clerk. And Shiva was the scribe. And Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. So you have a teacher and you have the priest. So he wants his spiritual house in order. And it says that Ira also the Jairite was the chief ruler around David. And so one of David's chiefs of staff now is this man, Jair. And so it's the reordering, really, of David's administration now that he's back from uh, exile. Okay, so you say, what does that have to do with moving it to the top of the pile? Everything. Here's why. Because David, at this moment, has a very long to-do list. He's coming back, and he knows that the whole kingdom has been turned upside down. And he has to set a lot of things right. He's got to deal with the concubines. He's got to organize the military. He's got to reorganize the government office structure. He needs to reform the tax code. He needs to fill clerical staff positions. He needs to make sure the spiritual house is in order. And he needs to appoint new chiefs of staff. Now, I think that's a little bit more involved than what's on most of our to-do lists right now. There's a lot going on. However, In the middle of all this, his to-do list is interrupted by this man, Sheba, and his revolt against David and against Israel. And it would be very easy for David to put Sheba on the back burner and say, I'm going to take care of what's in front of me right now, and I'll deal with Sheba later, But David realizes, because he's a good leader, is that this mustard seed of a small problem now is going to turn into something uncontrollably bad later on if I don't put everything else on hold and move this to the top of the pile. This has to be dealt with now. Okay? Now, we can all relate to this in some regard because no matter what you do or where you are probably in any part of your life, you are going to be interrupted with issues that you don't want to deal with at any given time. You take a new job, you move into a new house, you are transitioning all of your credit cards and your addresses and your DMV uh, information and everything into, you've got a to-do list that goes on and on and on and on, and we go through seasons like that. And then you find pot seeds on the floor of your son or your daughter's car. And now you have a choice to make. I can deal with this at the expense of all the other things that I have to get done right now. Or I can, well, they're just pot seeds and I guess it's legal now. Maybe I'll just wait on this one. I won't deal with it in this moment. I can put it off or I can deal with it now. And David chooses that he's going to deal with it now. Now, Sheba is a mustard seed. Jesus taught us that mustard seeds turn into something much bigger. That's just what happens. It might seem like a small thing, but it will turn into a big thing. Pot seeds now turn into or grow into meth addiction rehab later on. You see, it doesn't stay small. It only starts small. We have a, uh, I have a friend um, in in a company that I work with and um, there's a, 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 I don't even know what her title is, you know, in in the whole thing, but she's not, um, she's not the head of the whole thing, but I I work with her uh, in what I do. And, and one of the things my daughter one of my daughters is kind of helping me out in, in some of the things so we got together with, with her and we had this meeting and uh, we're talking about some things and I'm asking like well how do you do this and how, you know whatever and she's just like well I don't know but I can find out for you she goes let me send an email right now and so in the middle of this meeting she just goes and then she goes I'll have an answer for you and I looked at my daughter and said do you see that I said from day one that I have known this particular person that is her way do it now Do it now. Do it now. Guys, say it. Do it now. Do it now. Do it now. Okay? And there are things that sometimes you just have to do it now. As inconvenient as it is, do it now. Because we don't get to choose when unexpected problems come, but we do get to choose what we do with them, and we are to deal with them now, right away. That is uh, of the utmost importance. I feel like I missed something that I wanted to say, but maybe it's going to come up um, later on. Okay. Uh, problem number six. Number six. If you're still taking notes, uh, number five was was uh, uh, move it to the top of the pile. Number six is Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, and that is this: that leaders have to make tough choices. There are some tough choices. You say, well, how tough can they be? Let's look at chapter 21. It says, Then there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now, parentheses to explain, the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites and the children of Israel had sworn unto them and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and to Judah. Okay, so here's what's going on uh, just in case none of that made sense to you at all is that David is back, he set everything up, things begin to move forward again, and all of a sudden, the economy hits a recession, and it's bad. And in those days, in an agrarian society, if there was no rain, there was recession. That's just how it works. And so there was a famine, there was no water, there was no food, means that there was no money, and people were feeling it. Everybody was stressed, hungry, discontent, and it happened for three years in a row. And so David, as the leader, all eyes are on him. What's the problem here? You've got to fix this. (laughs) Go back to number four, reference that, you know, fix this problem that is not your fault. And so David does what only he can do. And he goes to the Lord and he says, God, what is going on here? Three years of famine. You promised to bless your inheritance. Why is this going on? And God swiftly answers David. And he says, there's a problem in, in the kingdom, David. It's because of the Gibeonites. Okay, back in the days of Joshua, hundreds of years before David comes into power. The Gibeonites were Amorites, they were not Israelites, and they were living in the land, and God had told Joshua, go in and you get everyone out. And the Gibeonites were smart and they saw what was going on. They're watching all these little miniature towns and villages and and, uh, people groups fall. And so the Gibeonites said, we got to protect ourselves. And so they put on this ploy where they, they, they made themselves look like they were wayfaring travelers from hundreds of miles away, even though they were only like down the block. And they brought stale bread and worn out shoes and they came all dirty and famished to Joshua and they said, we heard about your God and we heard what you're called to do and we're afraid of you and we fear your God and we don't want to fight. And so we just want to make a covenant of peace. And and Joshua said, well, where are you from? And they said, oh, we're from far, like far. You can't even throw a rock that far. We're so far, far away. (laughs) And and he, he looks at their shoes. He looks at their bread. He looks at their faces but he doesn't pray. And he says, all right, we'll sign a peace treaty with you. We'll let you live. Not going to matter. They're not from here. Then the next day after signing the peace treaty, he finds out they live next door. They're right there. And so he comes over and he's like, wait. And they're like, you signed a contract. You've got to let us live. And Joshua goes, God? And God says, yeah, you signed a contract. That's your oath. That's your word. You keep your word. And so Joshua said, okay, I'll let you live, but you're going to be servants to our temple and to our God. You're going to learn the ways of our God. You're going to be close to the ways of our God. We're not going to let you be an influence for evil in our culture. If you want to live and you're going to live because we contracted with you, then we're going to make you know our God. And that's what happened. The Gibeonites never gave Israel problem ever. However, Saul needed to show productivity and he was not a productive person. And so he thought, well, how can I score points with this people that are looking at me saying, Saul, you need to do something because you're useless. And so Saul said, I know, I'll kill Amorites. And so he goes to the Gibeonites and he kills a bunch of them, even though they had been in contract with God that they were not to be killed. And so time goes by and now God hears the grief of the Gibeonites. And God says, okay, they signed a note, they signed a contract, They didn't keep their side of the deal. And so God says, I'm going to withhold rain until this is set right. We have a God who sets things right. He wants things right. And so David says, God, what's going on? God says, this is because of the Gibeonites. Fix it. So it says... Verse 3, wherefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? What will satisfy you guys in making this thing right? And the Gibeonites said unto him, we will have no silver nor gold from Saul. We don't want reparations. We don't want you to pay us money for the damage that was done to us as a people. He also says, neither for us, shall you kill any man in Israel? We don't want revenge either. We don't rep- want reparations. We don't want revenge. So you, we're not just going to have you kill some of you, uh, your people, generically for us. And so he said, well, what, do you, what, what shall you say that I will do for you? There's got to be uh, something in this thing that, that we can do. And so it says that they answered the king. Verse 5. The man that consumed us, Saul, it's his fault. And that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel. Let seven men of his sons, his descendants, be delivered unto us. And we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. They said, we don't want reparations and we don't want revenge. What we want is justice. And in our minds, this is the best way that we will uh, feel justified in the thing. If seven, we can't do anything to Saul because he's dead, but give us seven of his sons and we'll be satisfied uh, with that. You taught us eye for an eye. You taught us hand for a hand. That's the law of your God. And so just give us seven of his descendants and we'll be satisfied. And so the king said, I will give them. Wow. (laughs) Talk about tough choices. David has tough choices here. He's got two really, really tough choices to make right now as the leader of Israel. Choice number one is this. Famine, death, and disease for the entire nation, and God is grieved with them because of the Gibeonites, or I have to choose seven men that are going to die. That's choice number one. That's tough, right? Like, uh, maybe we'll just ride out the famine. It can't not rain forever, you know? Like, I don't want to cho- I can't do this, you know, the whole thing. He's got to make the choice to do it. That's choice number one. And then choice number two, infinitely harder, is who do I pick? How do you go to the descendants of a dead man and say, hey, I'm the king and I come in the name of the king and in the name of the Lord. And I got, I just have terrible news for you today is that seven of you all have to die. You know, and and it's on me to choose which one, any volunteers before we get into this, (laughs) you know, before we start drawing straws, any of you just really, really depressed. (laughs) I mean, how do you make that decision, right? How do you choose Like the company is going under and seven people have to get laid off and they're going to lose their livelihood. How do you make that decision? Like that's really, really hard. And you just put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. This is not an easy thing. Well, it tells us who he chose. It says in verse seven, it says that the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, Uh, the son of Saul, the grandson of of, of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so they're out. He says, well, I made a promise to Jonathan and to his his kids. I'm not um, giving them. But, verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, whom she bare unto Saul. She was a concubine of Saul not one of his legitimate wives, but they're descendants of Saul nevertheless, and more uh, Armoni and Mephibosheth. It's a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons, the other five, were the sons of Michael. Remember her? Uh, Michelle, Michael, remember the the daughter that was given to him and then taken back? And then she was a problem. She was a problem wife, a problem child. She was a problem person. Uh, And and she made fun. She mocked David, and David kind of put her into uh, seclusion. But there was a season that Saul kind of took her and gave her to somebody else. Remember that? Like way back when David was running? You know, he took Saul, the king, took his daughter back from David and let her marry somebody else. She married somebody who had five kids already. They were not her kids. He had five. She became the stepmother of those five. So legally, she is the stepmother of these five kids Therefore, legally, they are descendants of Saul. However, they are not blood descendants of Saul. It's a technicality, but it works. And this is good for David. Because if David kills seven Benjamites, what does that do to him politically? It's horrible. Can you imagine being in this position? This is leadership. But listen, understand this, because it works out actually amazingly that he can um, pick these five. I mean, I, I hope I'm not making too light of five people's lives, you know. But, but David knew these boys, and he knew McCall, and so he picks these five. Let's see what happens. It says, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite, And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord and they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. And so David satisfies the desire of the Gibeonites and he's going to end the famine effectively that's upon Israel and at the same time he does not kill Israel. Uh, seven Benjamites, only five of these, uh, um, these stepsons of her in the whole thing. Do you know, do you know, it's actually brilliant the way David handles this. And just understand this because you are going to be at some point in a position where you have to make what seems like an impossible decision. It's a lose-lose. If I do this, I lose. If I do this, I lose. I can't win in this. If you put it before the Lord and if you wait long enough, I tell you, In his name, there is a good way out of every situation. It doesn't matter what it is. He will make a way where there is no way. I seem to remember something about a Red Sea splitting in half. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. And if you put it before him and wait, he will show you the best way out of something that seems to you to be impossible. That's what he does. Okay, now David is not a heartless man, okay? Um, And so watch what happens in verse 10. It says that Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, that's the mother who just lost two of her sons, she took sackcloth and she spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven. And she suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. She is in deep mourning over the loss of these two boys. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And so David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, which had stolen them from the street of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, these seven descendants of Saul." And the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, buried they in the country of Benjamin and Zilah in the sepulcher of Kish, his father, and they performed all that the king commanded. And so the king goes to Rizpah, and I'm sure he wept with her. And he said, I want you to understand the dynamics of everything that's going on right now. And he said, I want you to know we're going give to them, give them a proper burial. And so he goes to the trouble. To gather the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the family. And then the bones of these seven. And he gives them a proper service that I'm sure he himself was a part of. And they buried them in Benjamin, in the proper place, in the proper house. He says, this is the very best that I can do for you in a very bad situation. But he does it nevertheless. And it says that after that, so even after the compassion that David showed to this woman, Rizpah, that God no doubt cared for. It says that after that, God was entreated for the land. Okay, understand this as a leader, because we're called to be leaders, is that sometimes you have to clean up after someone else's mistakes, and it's not easy. That's what David goes through here. Number two, God takes oaths seriously. Okay, I have gotten to the point when I do a wedding now and I marry two people and we go through that part where we sign the marriage certificate, you know, where the, the witnesses, usually it's the maid of honor and the best man, uh, two friends, whatever, they come and they sign and they go, ha, 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 this is great. And they've got a champagne glass in one hand and the pen in the other hand. They're like, where do I sign? You know, and, and here's what I do now is I take the witnesses and I get them together at the same time. And I said, do you realize what you are doing right now is that you are signing an oath before God that these two are going to stay married until they die and your name is on it, which means that when they have problems and they're going to have problems, it falls on you first to keep this marriage together. And if it doesn't, then guess who's also involved? Do you still want to sign it? Yeah. You know, that's, you know, just usually the point in things where, where, where it is, you know. Do you know that when you say, I do, at an altar before God and witnesses, you are making an oath until death do us part. And when you violate that oath or say, I just don't want to anymore, and you don't have grounds for that, which God has provided for when needed, then you are putting yourself in a place where you can end up where, why is there so much famine? Why is everything going wrong? Why is everything I do cursed in my life? What's going- And if you inquire of the Lord, you may hear it's because of the oath. That God takes oaths seriously, okay? And then number three is that leaders have to make decisions and then go that's the hard part i I went to a wedding recently and i went to the rehearsal dinner and i loved the rehearsal dinner do you know why because the menu had two options chicken or fish that's it chicken or fish the next day i went to a diner and i was handed a menu that looked like my bible and had 18 pages and i almost had an anxiety attack because I felt like I get one choice and I've got way too many options. And I don't know if I'm the only one in here that has trouble making decisions sometimes, but there is a discipline that every one of us must learn. And that is make a decision, move on it, and don't look back. It's part of being a leader. And that's what David has to do in this whole thing. He has to make tough choices, okay? Number seven, and then we're done, okay? Number seven is the the last few verses of chapter 21. Uh, And here it is. It's, hey, leader, that's a baton in your hand. I'm not talking about the marching band type that you twirl around and make everybody you know, impressed. I'm talking about that, the type that you pass off to someone else when you are done being a leader. Verse 15, it says, moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. This is the first time we ever see David weary in battle and not able to complete and perform what he has set forth to do. And Ishbi Benab, which was of the sons of the giant, one of the sons of Goliath, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, and he being girded with a new sword thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, secured or helped David and smote the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swear unto him, saying, You shall go no more out with us to battle, so that you quench not the light of Israel. They're saying, hey, David, there's a little too much salt in your hair and a little, not enough pepper uh, anymore. And you're just a little bit too old to be out here in the battle with us. You cannot come and fight with us anymore. And it came to pass after this, That there was again battle with the Philistines at Gob and Shebekai the Hushite through Saph, which was of the sons of the giant, another son of Goliath. And there was yet again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Alhanahan, the son of Jair Aragim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature that had every hand, on every hand, six fingers, and on every foot, six... Toes. Don't make me say it about the six-fingered man. <laughs> I, why does the princess bride come up once a month in, in a Bible study? I don't know, but here is the six-fingered man. He is, he is just inescapable. And, and it says that he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. Watch, here's the summation. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Goliath falling by the hand of David and the other four falling by the hand uh, of his um, servants. Okay, listen, David almost dies in battle. And I can only imagine what that must have been like for him. I mean, those of you, uh, those of us, I, I actually can say now, that, that are starting to feel that, where we're not as strong as we used to be, we're not as sharp uh, thinking as we used to be, we're not as, as capable or competent as we used to be, can't do as many reps, can't press as many pounds, you know, and we're starting to feel that a little bit. There's something inside that you can start to feel a little discouraged you can start to feel like I'm, I don't have the value anymore. Uh, what's going on? I've lost my edge. You know, what's going on? What happened? Ichabod, is the glory departed? You know, what's going on this whole thing? And I'm sure that David is feeling that. He has never, ever been in a, in a compromised position in battle before where he's in danger of dying. And he actually has to be helped by Abishai, one of his, his generals uh, in, in this situation. And I imagine that David was just like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? This is crazy. And you can get extremely discouraged when that happens unless you look around you and you can see that because of what you did, when no one else was doing it, now there is a whole host of people that are doing what you once could do. That's the kind of leader that David was. David fought Goliath when no one was fighting giants. And now the whole army is taking down giants. And that is the legacy of leadership. Do you understand? Is that we are not raising followers. We're raising leaders. We're not raising people that watch what we do and glorify us. We're raising people to be able to do more and do as much as we do so that someday we can hand the baton to them and know in ourselves that the purpose for our life was not about us. It was about something much bigger than us. It wasn't about now. My purpose, my existence was purposed way before I was born. And it will continue way beyond after I die. And I have the privilege and the part right now to become the kind of leader that God is raising me up to be. So that the people in my sphere that are watching and following and living in my legacy will go as far or further than I did. That's a baton in your hand. We're finished with this study, and I just want to invite you guys to stand right now because I want to pray over you. And the reason is this, because God called you to follow him because he's calling you to lead in some form or fashion. He does not call followers. He calls leaders. It doesn't mean you're a leader on the first day. It's what he makes you. But Jesus said these words. He said that no man puts his hand to the plow and looking back, has any honor in the kingdom of heaven? That is that when he calls you to that place, he is telling you up front. And we have seen it in David's experience that it isn't an easy calling, that it isn't about the honor and the glory that comes with it. It isn't something that just just falls to us. It's something that requires work and discipline and pain and purpose of heart to keep going when it's hard and when it hurts. But you're doing it for a reason, for something that's eternal, that's greater and bigger than what you are. I remember a moment where I was standing in the sound booth here on a Sunday morning in this church, and there was a guest pastor. And he gave an interesting type of altar call where he said, the, usually when there's an altar call, it's repent of sin or come to Jesus, something like that. But this was different. He said, he said there's some of you that are here tonight, right now, and God has placed a call upon your life to lead in some way. And if that's you, and you want to accept that call to leadership, I want you to get up out of your seat and come forward. And I was standing in the, in the sound booth, and it was probably one of the highlights of my life to see it. As I was there, and I saw my son. He was probably 13 or 14 years old in, in, in the back of the auditorium. He was sitting by himself. He wasn't with his mother or with anybody. He was sitting by himself, and I watched him. And he was standing there. And I, and I could see that something was going on inside of him. And as he was there, I saw him and he, he went like this, he went like this, and then he stepped out and then he stepped back and then he stepped out and he went forward. And, and there was not. I, I just went, oh my, that's, that's deep. You know, he was by, he was real, it was powerful. And, and that moment gripped me. And what I want to communicate to you right now is that when Jesus saved you and revealed himself to you, He put the same calling in you for something. And some of us are afraid of it. Some of us have sat down in the middle of it. Some of us maybe are hearing it right now for the very first time. But know this, is that if he has called you and revealed himself to you, there is something bigger than you that he is calling you for. And it is something that you must receive and know this, that he is with you in it. He will make you sufficient for it. He will equip you unto it, no matter how big or seemingly small it might be, it's bigger than you think. And so Father, right now, I pray over this congregation of people and I ask in Jesus' name that if there are any here, Lord, tonight that need that touch from you, To be reignited and recommissioned and resent, as it were. Lord, that you would place in them that affirmation of your spirit and your love in their heart that you've called them for a reason. If there's any here tonight, Lord, that have sat down because of the difficulties or the pain or the toughness of what it entails to hold that position. I pray in Jesus' name that right now they'd be filled with oil, breathed upon by you, filled with fresh fire. That you again, Lord, would cause them to rise to their feet and that you'd strengthen the feeble knees and the hands that hang down. And Father, if there are any among us that you would call to any form of leadership that will make a difference in these days, Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would fall in such an individual and impactful way that you would impart gifts, that you would impart understanding, that you would give vision, that you would give conviction, that you would give direction and leading, that you would open doors of opportunity. That none, Lord, none would fail in what you've called them to do. And so we plead the blood of Jesus over this place, over our hearts, over our existence and the call that's on our lives. And we ask you, Father, that in spite of the difficulties and the cost, that we would arise to the occasion and that we'd respond to your will and desire for our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's sing.